Hey everybody, what's up? It's your boy MJ. By now, you should know that I love Grenache. In fact, I always say that Pinot Noir wants to be Grenache when it grows up. That's why I'm so excited to be a part of the first annual Grenache Fest. It's taking place on November 3rd, 2023 in downtown Walla Walla, Washington at the Historic Motor Co. We're going to kick things off with a seminar moderated by yours truly at 5 p.m., followed by live music, food, wine, and fun from 7 p.m. until. While the seminar is sold out, there are still a few tickets left for the festival, which will feature performances by Stephen Malkmus, M. Ward, and Mark Pickerel. Go to GrenacheFest.com for more information and to purchase your tickets today. Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a Black Wine Guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey, everybody, what's up? It's your boy, MJ. Welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is the founder and winemaker of The Vice Wine, Malik Amrani. Malik moved from Morocco to New York City, where he worked in the wine and spirits industry for over a decade. Uh, today, Malik and his wife, Tori Greenberg Amrani, envisioned a brand that would make exceptional quality Napa Valley wines affordable. Uh, the result is The Vice Wine, a family-run boutique enterprise producing small batches of inspired wines, Welcome, Malik. Thank you for having me, MJ. Thank you so much for being here. I'm glad we got to do this. Uh, Tori actually reached out to me. Man, I don't even, time has just been crazy for me. might have even been a year ago, but it was a long time ago. And then finally, you guys sent me some wines, enjoyed them. Um, thank you. And uh, saw you are going to be in town. I was like, you know what? I, I can make this happen on this Friday. So thanks for, thank you. Thanks for coming in. Tell everybody uh, what we're drinking today, man. Today we're drinking uh, our house cab. This is a Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon 2021 vintage. This is, um, I make a lot of different wines, but everybody asks me, what's your favorite wine? Um, this is certainly my favorite because it's my most important um, wine that we make. Um, this is our number one SKU, 11,000 case production. Uh, all cab, but four different vineyards of Napa Valley, a lot of Coombsville and Carneros, a little bit of Oakville and Sinalina, 50-50 uh, French and American oak, only 12 months of aging. Um, this is our bread and butter, about 38% of our production. Nice, nice. And we'll get into this later, but while we're entering the wine, so Napa Valley cab, affordable. Like what would someone expect to pay retail for this bottle of wine? Um, Mid-30s. So how do you do that? How do you create an app cab for mid thirties? We'll talk about that later, but sure. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I know we didn't not there yet, but you brought another bottle, which looks like port, like um, and the bottle shape, but I don't know what is, what is the other. You nailed it. That is port of Petit Sarah from uh, Calistoga. Ooh, can't wait to try that. Um, awesome, man. So I like to start at the beginning. Like Biggie said, where are you from? Morocco, Casablanca, Morocco. Wow. Actual Casablanca. Yeah. 
Oh my God. So what's it like? <laughs> what's it like growing up in Casablanca? I mean, you said you moved here. Yeah. What was it like growing up in Mar- Morocco, Casablanca? Uh, yeah. Tell people about that. Yeah. So Casablanca, everybody thinks it's so far away from here. It's actually right equal dis- distance. Uh, New York is equal distance. Um, uh, it's right in between Morocco and I'll say Napa. It's about 3,000 miles each way. That's it. Yeah, same uh, flight time. It's about six and a half hours to um, Casablanca. And um, 34 latitude, so it's exactly the same climate as L.A. So facing a major ocean to the west, um, same identical weather as L.A., as I said. Um, Looks like it a little bit. You know, the palm (laughs) trees and the fauna and the trees and whatnot. But um, growing up in Morocco uh, in the late 80s, 90s, um, you know, it was, it was wonderful because it's such a, um, uh, it's such a, it's the, one, it's the, the, the getaway to Africa. It's the entrance to, mm-hmm. in a sense, it's the Northwest corner. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, there's such a clash of uh, cultures, you know, we're, uh, Moroccan speaks speak a lot of uh, languages. Mm-hmm. Uh, we learn French in school. It's uh, almost like the official language for business. Mm-hmm. Um, we are taught taught Arabic uh, for six years growing up from the age of six to twelve. And um, our dialect, the Moroccan dialect, is a blend of local native uh, languages, mm-hmm. a little bit of Arabic, Spanish, French. Um, so as a Mor- as Moroccan, most Moroccans speak at least three languages. Uh, culturally, you know, we're super close to Europe. Yeah. Uh, the Moors colonized Spain for about seven, eight hundred years, uh, Spain and Portugal. So we're very close um, DNA wise. Yeah. Uh, but also we are native Africans. So um um, and we are influenced by the East a little bit, Middle East, by the Arabs. Um, but we are very pro-West, you know, the first country in the world to um, um, recognize the independence of the United States in 1777. So we've always been super um, friendly to everybody. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was honestly, it was, a, it was awesome. I miss it sometimes. So... Uh, the sea, so it's it's Mediterranean climate essentially, right? Or there's part of Morocco that's small part of Morocco that's in the Mediterranean. Okay, but mainly it's on the Atlantic. Okay, oh, it's on the Atlantic. Yeah, Morocco has the largest uh, coast um, out of all of uh, African countries. Yeah. And so historically, because we're gonna, uh, you know, we'll get. I like to take people on a history lesson. I like to learn too, because Morocco's. Definitely on my radar to go. I would love to visit Morocco. Um, historically, um, with all that coastline, like you said, so it was a port, right? Port city, a Casablanca? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. It was established. Um, it's not an old city, but it's the fourth largest city in Africa today, about four and a half million people. It was really established in the early 20th century. Okay. Um, but um, it really boomed during... Um, you know, the last 60, 70 years. Yeah. So, um, are you an only child? You have siblings? How many people in your family? Yeah, I'm the middle child. Okay. So, uh, my older brother is three years older, and my younger one is seven years uh, younger. So, all boys? All boys. So, so what do your brothers do? 
my brother uh, owns a uh, like a bar farm pharmacy, so um, in Casablanca, mm -hmm. and my younger brother is in uh, uh, transport. He uh, he's in Canada. He lives in Montreal. <laughs> Honestly, every time I talk to him, he does something else. You're like, I don't know what you do. <laughs> you never want to tell me. No, exactly. So. He's like, import, export. There you go. Yeah. That's what he says. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. And so were you guys close? Were, were, was it a lot of fighting? Like, what kind of what kind of household did you grow up in? Was it rambunctious? Um, I was extremely competitive with my older brother, you know, because he was uh, three years older and... Um, I kind of learned a lot from his mistakes. Okay. So he served. He served almost as a, um, uh, like I learned so much from him and what not to do to avoid trouble. Right. My younger brother, I got to raise. Uh, my mother passed when I was eleven. He was mm. four, so he was my responsibility at the time. And um, um, yeah, I was almost like a parent to him. Yeah. So it was a little bit, you know. Uh, there's a lot of love, but a lot of, uh, you know, uh, you, you like how many, how many years old are you then? You're uh seven years old. How old? How seven years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, no. It's, it's like, I could, I can only imagine because my mom passed, uh, four years ago and I'm devastated. I had all my whole life. So I can only imagine, um, that for you at a young age. And I'm sure it's probably part of everything happens and makes who you are. I'm sure you found a way to find strength in it but um so now i see why he didn't tell you what he's doing he's like <laughs> i'm the parent you're the parent exactly <laughs> um so um how about your dad what did your dad do my dad was a pilot oh wow um yeah moroccan airlines wow so um he um we lived about 15 minutes from the airport mm -hmm. so he traveled a lot and um you know, Casablanca to Europe is very close. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, yeah, he traveled during the week and drank wine during the weekend. Although I was pretty sure he enjoyed a lot of wine back then and flew too. <laughs> you ever see that movie with Denzel where he was a pilot? Like, yeah. They, yeah right. they, they, I'm sure my father yeah, was executive back, uh, back director. The, yeah, back in the day especially. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Um, that's wild. Um and so I, what I know of Morocco, I don't know much, but it comes from athletics because I, I ran track and some great runners out of Morocco. Like yeah. Saeed Awida was, was the guy back in the day. And then who's the guy who Al came out? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He still, he still holds the world record of the mile in 1500. Yeah. But those guys like were like, I mean, just... They lit the world up at one point, you know. Um, you mentioned this when in the pregame, um, you'd want to be an athlete. So was it? And I know with Awida, he played football. He played soccer, yeah. but he was too slight. So they were yeah. like, "You got to go run." And I'm told a lot of runners, uh, a lot of runners out of Europe, played soccer, and then it, then they just weren't big enough. <laughs> they were fast, but they weren't big enough. So did you play a lot of? Uh, what we call soccer, AK football when you're growing up? Yeah, I played so much of it. I played a lot of sports growing up. Okay. Um, it, I played taekwondo starting at the age of three, from wow. three to 12. And I got my black belt at the age of 12. Um, at the time, I was uh, 
in Morocco is the youngest African to get a black belt in Taekwondo. Wow. And, um, but I also played tennis growing up, a lot of soccer, soccer in the street. Um, any time off, any time, any little break I had from school or between classes, we played soccer, even if it's 20 minutes. Um, And um, I ran a little bit, you know, I think running was more like trying to escape, uh, (laughs) uh, you know, uh, trouble, I guess. Yeah. And played a little bit of basketball as well. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of childhood, um, I love, like I'm American, born in Jersey, so we played the big three, football, basketball, baseball, you know what I mean? Um, where I grew up now, a lot of Brazilians have moved in. It's like you said, I, you go and you'll just see kids like three on three in their yard, barefoot, playing football. It's just so ingrained in the rest of the world. It's pretty, it's just wild how uh, it hasn't really caught on here yet on one level. Slowly, it's yeah. going to get there. Yeah. You would think we would have the best soccer team in the world because of all the immigrants, <laughs> but we yes. don't. You would think actually by now, the U.S. would actually have a, a really good team. Um, so you grow up and then, uh, did you go to university in Morocco or did you? No. So I started school quite early. So because of my older brother, Mm -hmm. um, he started school at the age of seven and I, I was four. So I was trying to copy him. Mm -hmm. So I learned how to read, uh, learn how to multiply, learn how to count at a very young age at four. And at the age of five, my father had to fight for me to get into school. They really didn't want me to start school until seven or six at least. Mm. But I started school young mm-hmm. and um, ended up graduating high school at 16. Okay. I did really well uh, growing up. I was always very competitive in school, uh, although I was a huge troublemaker. But I think I did really well in school so I can, it covers for my troubles. Mm-hmm. And I uh, graduated high school at 16, and I went to med school in Dakar, Senegal, um, so West Africa. And um, that's, and I spent a year there, realized I did not want to be a doctor, um, and um, decided to come here. So, <laughs> back up. I want to make sure I have this timeline. Yeah. Graduate high school at 16. You go to medical school yep. in Dakar, which is in Senegal. Also was formerly a French colony, so probably is that the connection? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, and that's West Africa, um, which I've heard the beaches in West Africa are bananas. Just yep. I have, uh, well, I've, one of my former students was from Africa, and then also I had friends who were in the Navy, and they're like, oh my God, you, the beaches. Um, and so medical school, um, you left after a year, but how long would that program have been? Would it have been like a six-year program? Was it, was it, or or did they, they just cut the bullshit that we have here? We have to go to college. You know, they, they... So it's the French system. Yep. It's seven years. Okay. And then one year of practice. Then you get to do four-year specialty if you want to specialize in something. I really wanted to be a psychiatrist, a psychologist. Um, but... When I got there, I made a lot of friends, and I saw that everybody, it was impossible, almost impossible to pass every single year, uh, all seven years. Even, like, the geniuses were, 
repeating the third year, for example, at least once. Mm. I had a friend that was in the third year of medical school, five years. Uh, yeah, it's quite, uh, it's really hard. Yeah. It's really, really hard. And um, my luck, you know, you go to school, but you also they go to university, but since you don't pay for anything, it's part of the exchange program, the quota thing, they put you to work um, some hours a week. My luck was ICU. You're talking about, um, you know, uh, university, university hospital, which is actually the main hospital in the car. Mm-hmm. ICU, it was quite rough. And um, I kind of became emotionless. I, you know, it was really hard on me. I think I'm, I think I may be emotional, but after a while, I just had no emotions. I was just seeing a lot of uh, rough stuff and just wasn't affecting me. So I figured that maybe medicine wasn't for me Mm -hmm. because I saw it as, um, being a doctor, you know, you want to care for the people and it's not about just treatment. It's about prevention. It's about a lot of things. But, um, you know, I realized if I, if I follow, if I stay in that field, I will not really be looking at humans as patients and caring for them. I'll just look for them as subjects. And it's just, you know, it's more of a profession to make money. And, um, I didn't want to do that. I um, it's profound. It's powerful. A couple of things. I mean, I used to work in education, so I could see. So if you can go enter the program at sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, I could see why it's so rigorous. Like I, why you would have to repeat five years. What we do here, most people, there's something like in the United States. Like I read a stat. Please fact check this, but but let's say like. 30% of the people who go to University of Michigan are pre-med in the major in science. Ends up being about 17% or 13% that actually gets through because it's so rigorous at that level. That's how they weed out the people, right? I Most people in the United States would not repeat something five years in a row. Like, so they would have got, those are the people who would have got weeded out after like molecular biochemistry or something, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and then I've always thought about that. I do have friends who are doctors, but... One, like you said, working in an ICU, a lot of trauma comes to the ICU. So on one level, you have to desensitize yourself because it, it's triage work, right? Like it's not, you know. And then every time I'm driving, though, man, and I'm used to live in L.A. and I'm just to live in California, really, like it's all plastic surgery billboards, bro. <laughs> like that, and that's not what plastic surgery was for. It was for like tough pallets. You got into an accident and it turned like, oh, we can make money because people don't feel good about themselves so i just i do i mean i and there's great doctors out there please don't leave comments people like oh he's no but like i can see depending on who you are and how you feel in your heart it wasn't for you so i applaud that the courage because that's like i'm sure your dad was disappointed like oh very yeah yeah. you know it takes courage to be like oh you know what and it's free because the french system like people are saying like around the world that's another thing here that hundred twenty thousand dollar education i have that i don't use (laughs) You know, so it's free, but it's more rigorous. Um, So you you were in Dakar and then you just came to New York. What was the next step? Did you go back home first? No, not at all. So I I did not want to go to Europe, you know, for, you know, when for a lot of 
Africans, especially from the ex-colonies of the French system. You know, Morocco and Senegal uh, were one country for a long time until the French split us mm. and the, the, the colonizers split us and whatnot. Spanish had to do something with it too. Yeah. When I was um, when I was there, I was thinking about going to Europe, but um, I've been to Europe so many times growing up, and, and for many years I used to go almost every weekend. You know, free flights and mm. have family there, but. I kind of realized that going to Europe, um, and unfortunately, I'll say France specifically, um, as an immigrant, uh, whether African or North African, however you want to label it, the best I will ever be, no matter what I will, no matter how, how much I can succeed in life, I'll always be a second-class citizen. Mm -hmm. There is really not such thing as, um, you know, um, you can do all you want to do, and it's it's there's there's such um, you really want to talk about racism. It's it's uh, there's so much more in the old world than there is here. Yeah, and um, so um, right because I mean, colonization. I mean, colonization is different from kidnapping. I mean, it's fuck like like yeah. literally. I mean, it's not. I'm not. Listen, I'm not. But like, I do. I understand. Like, like a lot of these countries. Like, I think about. Jamaica, like God is independent. Nineteen sixty fucking four, dude. Yeah. Like a lot of these countries didn't get their independence, and then you don't want to allow the people in your country, and like you said, you're permanently, permanently second class citizen. Yeah. Permanently, and I and I mean that's you know I you see it on the news like that's a it's a big thing. That's why oh, I was I was rooting for Morocco in the World Cup. World Cup, I know. Everybody was. So many people. So many people were like, "Yes, this would be just like it'd be like the it's like the the only type of justice you could could garner like to beat your your conqueror yeah. on the world stage." You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that was a rough one. Um, but I've you know I have friends who I went to law school who were North African, and. Uh, or through Canada, and they and this they were telling me about like I you know I had you had no idea like you know uh, we we can be very myopic in our what ha we know in the United States and understand that this is a, a global global issue. Yeah, so um, not to dive into it too much, yeah. you know, a lot of countries got their independence in the '60s, but that's just superficial independence. Right. Even today, I, honestly, this year this is the year that uh, a lot of these West African countries are finally in shackling themselves, split, you know, like. Um, kicking away um, you know France from their economies and they still use the currency that's still minted in France the France CFA so being there I really just wanted more opportunity and yeah. um, I don't know what movie it was I don't know what it was exactly but I know there was some time there was a, it was a one night one event where I was like I have to go to I have to go to the United States and I think New York I think it was a movie or something where uh -huh. I was like I gotta go to New York so um, out of the blue, I decided to go apply for a visa to United States at the uh, United uh, the American Embassy in Dakar. Um, so I looked up all the papers I needed. Um, thankfully, I didn't need as much. You mm -hmm. know, I just needed the school stuff, and and um, secretly I took my passport and my brother's passport because my brother was with me. Um, my father sent us both to Senegal, um, and. Um, I went to the interview, got the interview, went to the interview without my brother. And the interview was about 43 minutes with the American lady that was interviewing me. And I think she was doing the talking for 37 minutes. 
because I was asking her. I was like, that's, about a, the US. That's, a, that's good for you, man. <laughs> yeah, no, because I was asking her everything yeah, about the US. Yeah, and yeah. she was just like, you know, she was supposed to be asking me, I was asking exactly. her. And um, I, I, I think she just saw so much passion and so much um, drive. Um, it took, it, it, it really required, like they, no less than two weeks for them to like give you an answer. Um, so the, that night I went uh, home and I told my brother, this is what happened. And he flipped. He's like, oh, we're, we're done. They're going to stamp uh, rejected and you're not going to be able to take a visa to any country for the rest of your life. What did you do? So we didn't sleep that night. Uh, we did drink our minds out and um, <laughs> until like six in the morning at 8 a.m. The phone rings the very next day. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, um, Hello, this is the the American uh, embassy in Dakar. Please come uh, retrieve your passport. So, um, you know, I wake up my brother. We get on the motorcycle. I'm, he's uh, riding. I'm sitting behind and literally crying. I'm like, I messed up so bad. And he's just cussing me the whole time. Um, so we get there and they don't let you in. They just give it to you from a uh, window. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I couldn't believe what I saw when I opened the passport. I had a 10 year visa um, to United States. I really couldn't believe it. It was like, it's such a gamble that paid off. And that was um, August 6th, August 8th, I was here. So uh, what year? 2004. Dude. So <clears throat> that's, that's all right. Your life's a movie, man. <laughs> so that was, uh, you know, I, uh, I called my father from, um, the airport and mm -hmm. told him, Hey, um, I'm never going back. And he's like, okay, you're so young. You're going to go have fun, go have some fun. Um, but I said, no, I'm really not going back. And, um, so we didn't speak for a while because he was like, I'm just disowning you in a sense. So mm -hmm. I came here to the U S I only had two days to, um, to, to, to leave in a sense. I mean, I, I rushed, I really wanted to yeah. get out. So, yeah. Um, whatever little valuable stuff I had, furniture, whatever I sold. So I, I came here with about $150 that I came with and I just blew through it within two days. And you made it two whole days. Yeah. I, uh, well, $150 20 years ago. Was a, I, <laughs> was even, like, I mean, it's still New York. <laughs> like, I know. That, but these are, these are the stories. These are these old time stories. Like, you know. Came here with uh, five dollars in his pocket from whatever country, and and, yeah. um, and you got a visa. Just like, did you have a spot? I'm just blown away. Yeah. Like, like how? Like, so it was a tourist visa. Okay, let me just clarify. Okay, it was okay. a tourist visa that I had six months. I was able to stay here for six months. Okay, After six months I have to leave the country. Yep. and, and then, if I stay, I burn it. Right, right. So that, yeah. I, that's the name. Go to Canada and come back. Yeah, like yeah. I know people do that. Go to Canada for two weeks and come back type yeah. deal yeah um okay so you land and you flew into jfk flew into new york city yeah flew to jfk and um a train got out in times square so it's just like a huge shock just looked up just looking i mean coming from senegal yeah. it was just uh wild and uh first night i slept at Port authority i picked up one of the beams i said this is a good beam to uh lay uh, under it and um put my uh, backpack and just um, put my head on it and slept uh, and um, started to learn the subway system and um, bounced around the MTA for a while and I realized the safer routes were the 
N and the R and the Q because they went from Astoria to um, Coney Island. Mm -hmm. um, I did have some very close uh, uh, bad experiences almost which would be really bad on the two and the the three and the four and five and you know just certain lines I was like I'm never never spending the night on I'm spending the night here um, and yeah I um, you know bounced around for a while my first job um, I think uh, my first week I somebody told me like there is a work agency and I still know uh, it's on 69th street in Queens uh, they go to them and talk to them so I went there and you know, they, they got me a job. My first job was on 110th Street and um, um, here in Manhattan, uh, 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 Central Park West, the dry cleaner, uh, 5.50 an hour, 7 to 7, 7 a.m., 7 p.m., six days a week. Mm. So I did that for three weeks and um, I got fired <laughs> because I showed up one day so trashed, so... You know, I wasn't sleeping much. Yeah. Sleeping in the subway. I wasn't really getting much yeah. sleep. Uh, but early on, I, um, very early on, I got a gym membership. It used to be that Bally's. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you remember Bally's? I remember Bally's, yeah. So I, I you know, I got uh, my first pay. I got Bally's gym membership. So I used to go shower. Because you can shower. Shower and work And out. work out. Yeah, yeah yep. every day. Yep. So, um and I was drinking at night, and um, I um, did not speak much English. You know, I really didn't speak a lot of English back then. Uh, super basic. So, uh, yeah, after almost a month, got fired, and then uh, got a job at a Subway sandwich, Lexington and 45th Street. Worked there for three weeks, and um, the guy never paid me. You know, he, he called me into the office like, when are you going to pay me? When are you going to pay me? He's like, oh, you're. He knew. He knew they wanted to have papers. And yeah, he's like, oh, you don't have to pay you. Took advantage of me. Yeah, took, yeah. Me scumbag. I cried. My mind I was like, oh my god, I'm gonna get you back. <laughs> I did get him back. Um, <laughs> and um, so there was that, and then I got a job as a um, as a busboy. There used to be a restaurant on Lexington and 65th Street. And I worked there for a bit, um, you know, and then, um, um, you're not going to believe this, but um, we closed the restaurants on Sunday, the, the Saturday. They don't, the restaurants closed on Sunday. Okay. I went to Monday to work. The entire restaurant disappeared. Let me tell you, like the, um, the faucets were gone. Everything, the bar, everything, like the lights, fixtures, everything was gone in less than 36 hours. I mean, I couldn't believe my eyes. I thought I was at the wrong address. It's like, this is impossible. Dude. Yeah, so the, um, so I didn't get paid after like working a month and I was really like devastated. Damn, so yeah. I, I, like <clears throat> what, I mean, I know that shit happens like with boiler rooms, like they're scams, like they, but like, yeah. how does a restaurant disappear overnight? 
So there was a, the guy was Italian from Italy and he was not paying the rent and um, I think he was going to get evicted. And what he did, he got um, what I was told by a guy that worked with me. He got some uh, team of Chinese guys that came in and literally drilled everything out and took the entire restaurant out, every single thing. Yeah, because if it's attached, it's supposed to stay in. Yeah, like they took yeah. everything out uh-huh. within uh, whatever, 24, 36 Damn. hours. And... Um, you know, he owed me for almost a month. And um, so. So this is like the second time you didn't get paid. This is like. Yeah. And I, yeah, I don't want to get too political, but like here you are working hard and twice you didn't get paid yep. because people knew you weren't from here. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I didn't have papers. But yeah. so that so the guy that told me about what happened that was working with me as a waiter um, was from Bangladesh and. um um, you know, he's like, well, what do you want to do now? I said, well, I enjoy uh, wine. I enjoy drinking and um, enjoy wine. And I want to meet people, really want to meet women, um, you know. Um, so I want to work at a wine bar. He's like, well, I my other job is in uh, Chelsea Market, hmm. um, 75 Ninth Avenue. Why don't you come in and, uh, you know, um, Check it out. Let me see. Well, let me see if they, let me see if they give me your number. Let me see if there's like, I, I don't know if my, you know, my, I don't know my phone situation back then, but it's like, I'll be there. Right. So, um, yeah, I got hired as a bar back. And um, three weeks later, the main bartender called uh, called me, he said, um, hey, I'm not going to make it tonight. It was a Thursday night. It's like, I can't make it. But uh, you're very smart. I saw you the last three weeks. You're writing things down. You know every single cocktail. I saw it. You know, I asked you to make a few cocktails, and you're really good at it. He said, uh, tonight is your show. And I was like, dude, you can't do this. I, I can't. I mean, I can't talk to people. He's like, nah, don't worry about it. Um, my very first two customers uh, were two ladies that worked for Moa Hennessy. Mm. Uh, things go back full circle. I'll tell mm. you all about it later. Because mm. um, their offices were on 10th Avenue and 16th Street. And uh, it used to be a hangout sp- uh, spot for them. So I, a um, uh, lady, I remember her name was Christina. And um, they sat at the bar and I was freaking out. I was, was like, and uh, my first night was great. And um, that's it. Became a bartender. And, um, you know, I really didn't want to burn my visa. So I tried to go to a school, private college, Mm -hmm. um, during the first six months and I paid, you know, I think the tuition was like five grand or something. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think I, I think I know, like I started for like a few weeks and then I realized that now I just want to focus on one thing and one thing only. And wine was that thing. Wine and spirits. At first, I really didn't know if it was going to be wine or spirits, mm-hmm. but I liked wine more because it just, it's almost like an, you're never going to know everything about both, but wine is so much deeper and more, um, you know, whiskey is whiskey. It tastes the same. There's no variation of vintages. If you make a style, it's the same thing. But wine is so much different year after year. And um, so, yeah, I decided to um, uh, chase a career in wine. So, dude, this is <clears throat> blown away by it. That's why I love doing this. Cause, and why I love, uh, what's the word? I, you know, I tell people, 
I, I want the stories behind the wines, and these are this is amazing. So, speaking of wine, like you said, you liked wine. Um, you're, you said your dad drank wine, but like when he would have meals, was there wine in the house? Would like if he would he make a meal and there'd be wine on the table growing up? So, the first <clears throat> the first taste of wine I had, uh, official taste of wine I had with my dad. I was eleven. Um, he was, um, you know, right after my mom was gone, he was very, um, um, depressed and, um, you know, he gave me a taste and I went to France with him one trip. I think at eight, mm -hmm. he gave me a taste, like a very small sip of, uh, Dom Perignon. We were at a, someone's celebration. I don't know what they were celebrating, but at 11, he gave me a taste, um, but wine was always around. Okay. Um, he he woke up every Saturday. He claims I spoke to him recently. I never saw my father leave his bedroom before eleven a.m. on the weekend. He claims he was always up early. But every single weekend, I remember seeing my father leaving his bedroom. He had a glass of wine in his hand, so he was day drinking. Eleven a.m. had a glass of wine. Um. Uh, Morocco, we, we make a lot of red wine. He loved red, but he loved white wine with fish. He didn't drink white wine just on its own. It wasn't yeah. a thing. Um, but he would pair it. Like so. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because I, I like talk people. Most people don't understand Morocco's historical place in wine. Yeah. So now that you make wine but but and you grew up there and you said, like, tell people about it, man. Yeah. So I think before like 1960, and you know, I'm not sure if it's exact facts, but I read it some somewhere. Don't call me on it, but but about sixty percent of all the wine traded, or maybe the grapes traded, the wine traded, um, uh, were or in the world were coming out from from Morocco and Algeria because yes. uh, Algeria. Algeria was a colony, Morocco was a protectorate, it was under the French system, and um, there was a lot of wine uh, grown, grapes grown there. I mean, it's. Again, it's a ideal climate, you know, it's, um, we have the mountains like, um, the Sierra Nevada mountains. So <clears throat> there's so much microclimates. There are a lot of valleys and, um, 300 days of sun and it, you know, dry, uh, it's, uh, honestly, it's very identical to California, mm -hmm. uh, climate wise. And, um, people think Morocco is the desert. Yeah. Well, you know, so it's California. Yeah, you know, Palm Springs. West, West of the Rockies is pretty much desert. People don't get, yeah. like, like, you know, like, first time I was, a boy, I was like, boy, high desert. Like, most, most of that West of the Rockies is arid. Let's put it that way. It is. You know? Um, there is a lot of wine still grown and made in Morocco. Uh, Moroccans drink, and they drink a lot. They just don't drink every day. Mm -hmm. And they don't, I feel like culturally, if you just drink a glass of wine, people will shame you. Um, the, I feel like the U.S., there's a lot about guilt. The old world, especially like a place like Morocco, it's about shame. Mm -hmm. um, people will shame you for drinking a glass of wine, not a bottle or two mm. or three. If if you drink, you have to get shit-faced. Mm. If you don't get drunk, then why you're drinking? So it's that culture. Yeah. So I feel like it's like why drinking? It's not to have a good time. But it's like, well, I just want to have a glass. Yeah, so it just goes with you my know? meal, man. <laughs> it's changing now. Yeah. But back then, yeah. like, you know, I every Friday my uncle will come in to hang out with my dad, and he'll show up with two bottles of each. And 
each one of them will have their own two bottles, like the same wine, but it's like just to keep track of how much you're drinking and I'm drinking type of thing. It's kind of I'm weird. not mad at that. <laughs> Sometimes if you're sharing a bottle with somebody and you're like, whoa, buddy, I drink a lot slower than you do. <laughs> That's but uh that's but that's that's great. Thanks for sharing. And yeah, somebody one of the listeners, you please uh you know, message me, email me, but like yeah, and also something I read somewhere and I you know, um that a lot of the wines, Burgundy they were supplemented with grapes from Morocco and Algeria. Yeah. Like if they had a bad vintage like like you said, not a lot of bad vintages in California or Morocco and Algeria. There's bad vintages in Bordeaux and yes. and and Burgundy, so they, you know, um, I had a friend who's Haitian, and he, and he 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 thought they thought they were gonna um, grow grapes in Haiti. That's why they were they were there. Like the, the French were very, you know, strategic in there. You know, well, all the colonists were like, what, "What can we extract from this land?" But yeah. I digress. But uh, yeah, it's it's one of those, and I'm there's I think there's books written about it. In fact, you know, like. You know, the dirty little secret of, you know, Burgundy and Bordeaux. Thank you. This is um, very classic Napa Valley Cabernet. I, I Thank think you. it's, um, you know, um, I make fun of natural wine, but, we'll get in, but, but anyway, but like, but then also there's, you have the natural wine people and you have the people who like the big over the top Napa cabs, which I know you make a, a, a double oak, which is a different style. Yeah. Which is opulent. But this for me, I get it's just, it's down the line. What you would think of, you know, old school Napa Cab flavors. I'm getting getting a little mint, some eucalyptus, some bay leaf, you know, that black cherry. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> that bartending gig uh, in Chelsea Market um, kind of set you really down the path. What was your next uh, move from there? Um, I started when I, between the age of 18 and 21, I worked six, seven days a week, really seven days a week. But I will say I worked um, 12 shifts a week. Mm. So I would work in Midtown, like in, um, you know, business lunch areas. Um, I'll do lunch and then I'll do dinner. Um at you know a somewhere a local wine bar um or like a good cocktail place with good decent wine program and then weekends i would um work clubs okay and um you know i i, I did i kept my job at uh for a while at uh chelsea market to do brunch brunch we used to do 400 covers so i'll work brunch um and it was decent money and then i'll really bounce through it all and then finish my uh week uh worked gay nights um you know um, a lot of gay bars and gay clubs mm -hmm. they, they hire the uh, good looking young <laughs> <laughs> you know that you know that would that would be you know have a certain look but yeah. won't do business yeah. if that makes sense yeah. so a lot of I don't know. A lot of the guys that worked with me also would be straight guys, but you can't really tell. Yeah. So, but spotted the game, yeah. and you know, I did really well. Saved a lot of money. Um, my, I had a lot of goals when I first came in, and go back to my favorite book, Rich Dad uh, Poor Dad. It was my first book that I read. Um, 
in English and when I was in the subway and um, um, it really um, got me to this idea about saving money. So my goal was to save $100,000 cash before the age of 21 and I think I did it by the age of 20. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, listen, some of those, some of those Sunday nights used to make a thousand, the least I've ever made yeah. was $956. Um, yeah, the good old days. Cash. Uh, Rules everything around me. No cash anymore, as yeah, you know. I know. It's, um, but yeah, I um, worked really hard and then um, I. Um, so, guys, yeah. just to recap, uh, on a, for shits and giggles, he goes down the U.S. Embassy in Dakar, gets interviewed. Actually, interviews the interviewer. Gets called 8 a.m. the next day, thinking that it was over. He would never get a visa. Gets a visa. Gets on a plane. Two days later, comes in New York City. Spends the night in Port Authority. I grew up here. I would never fucking spend the night in Port Authority. But he's just like, we're looking up at a bee. What is backpack? <laughs> Works for three weeks at a dry cleaner, gets fired, works at Subway, doesn't get paid for three weeks, works at a restaurant, spends overnight. And yet, by the, before he was 20 years old, he had saved $100,000. God damn, man. Work ethic, like, whoa. Like, whoa. Um, and so, and you, and, and then he read this, and I just love, like, this is like, dude, seriously, I want to buy the rights to your life story, man. Um, riding around on the subway, reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad working seven days a week that's says a lot about you my man um so now you 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 you've hit your goal but you're so young so you're so you're working all these jobs so did you at that point like get like a fine dining gig did you yes okay so um working lunch at fine dining business areas i um I um, just out of the blue, I think I was at a, this restaurant called Parea on 20th Street. I was doing lunch there, and I finished lunch, and I was walking. There was a restaurant called Japanese, 18th Street on Park Avenue, high-end French-Japanese. Um, I just walked in there, and I just asked the, the guy, are you guys looking for bartenders? And um, the bar manager was like, yeah, it happened that we are, and... Um, so I got hired and he left like I think a month after or something like that. There was a wine director. So I kind of took over quickly over the bar manager duties. Mm -hmm. And then I was really diving into wine and um, at the time already. And um, the wine director, I think I had a big mouth. And, um, you know, we used to tease each other all day and he was always pissed off. I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit. And then one day I was just like, I'm so tired of you saying you're going to quit. If you're a man, do it. And, um, cause I want your job. <laughs> I didn't think I was going to get his job, right. but he's, because I was already doing the liquor buy-in. Right. You knew how to budget. Inventory and, and buy-in. Mm -hmm. I, the, the wine fell, fell under me and sake and beer. And I'm like, um, so that was the biggest, um, break I would say because um, I called all my salespeople and I said and it was very big wine list and I mm -hmm. said um, I want you to come here once a week as much as you can every single wine you have in your bag I want to taste so at one point I was tasting 
I don't even know, 30, 40, 50 wines a day. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I was dealing with a lot of wines, changed some wines, and built relationships with them. And every time they had like a supplier in town or a winemaker, I was meeting people. So, um, yeah, so um, I did that for about a year or so. And um, I, I was talking to one of my salespeople, just, hey, do you like your job? And um, he said, yeah, and he was telling me all about it. And the guy represented Diageo Mo Hennessy with mm-hmm. a company called, uh, just newly established at the time, called Empire Merchants. And he's like, yeah, I do. And it's um, like, why are you considering? He's like, I don't know. I got a phone call later that day from uh, this lady that was like, hey, I want to meet with you. And um, we talk about, um, I, I couldn't catch what she was talking about. She's like, well, I want to meet at the Flat, Flat Iron Room. I said, no, well, why don't you come to the restaurant? She's like, no. So I show up, five o'clock, Flat Iron Room, and um, or a Flat Iron Lounge or Flat Iron Room. And she, um, she was almost 40 minutes late. As I was leaving, she, she walks in, and I'm giving her a hard time. I'm like, why wasting my time? And I had no idea what was happening. <laughs> I thought she was trying to pitch me something. She wanted to try and sell something. Mm-hmm. So she's like, well, give me 10 minutes. So she started asking me questions and I was answering her very quick. She's like, well, you know, I, you know, this is an interview. It's like interview, interview for what? It's like the sales, <laughs> salesperson's job. It's like, oh, it's like, well, you know, I really like you. Do you want to meet with my director tomorrow? Tomorrow, what time? 9 a.m. Where? In Astoria. So I uh, go meet with my, uh, you know, ex-director, ex-boss and uh, same thing. Like the embassy, uh, we'll call you in uh, the next two weeks. We're still going to be interviewing people. As I'm leaving the building, I will never forget this. My hand is literally uh, I'm holding the door, mm-hmm. pulling the last door of the building as I'm leaving. My phone rings. So I pick up the phone with my hand still on the door, and I see that she's calling me. It's like, oh, man, probably forgot something. So I pick up the phone. She's like, hey, can you come back? Can you come back up? So I went back up. It's like, well... We we really want you to work with us, and uh, we need an answer. And mm. I'm like, an answer now? <laughs> <laughs> okay, sure. So there you go. My life changed again. Um, I, I, you know, that, that was it. That was uh, this was um, Diageo. So um, distributor and mm-hmm. wine merchants, mm-hmm. uh, but exclusively representing the Adria Mohesi brands. Okay. And at the time, the Adria had a very nice uh, wine portfolio. They were still in the wine game. And, um, you know, they promised me a $50,000 territory to start. And I was like, well, this is a pay cut, but whatever. I'll make it happen. Um, I got like... Like, let me tell you, it, it like three salespeople were hired before me. So I got the garbage of the garbage. I'm sorry, like, I don't mean to say it like that, but like, so, like some really dead, dead, dead accounts. Yeah, like, yeah. It's like, what can I do with this? Like people on bad credit terms, like my entire territory was like, there's nothing to do. Um, to, But I didn't give up. I, um, I, um. I, you know, I, so part of the story is that growing up, um, I grew up riding motorcycles. Yeah. So when I got that gig, I, um, it's like the way I'm going to beat the system, beat everybody, the average rep sees five, six, seven accounts a day. I'm going to see 20 mm. and the average person works maybe from 10 to five to six. I'm going to work from 10 to midnight. 
Um, and so I did for many years. I was with them for 116 months of employment. So it's about 10 years. Um, you said it like a prison sentence, like when you get at the months. <laughs> well, yeah. The, the reason I count the months because every 112 months, about 112 months, I was certainly the in the top three, if not the number one salesperson in uh, MBOs and quotas. Um, so it was a, I was very um, obsessive about being the best. Yeah. Um, and at first, I was not the top revenue guy, but I still hit my numbers and. As I kept growing and growing and growing, I got better accounts, traded accounts, opened new accounts, and uh, before you know it, I was one of the, I was the top, um, you know, earner in my division, and um, I I was that for many years, and so I lived in Manhattan, Midtown East, um, rode motorcycle. I average rep had about sixty accounts. I had one hundred twenty. I never had less than a hundred, and. Um, I was, you know, earning decent money for somebody in their mid-20s. Um, part of the story that you know, didn't ask me that from the age of 18 to the age of 33, I lied about my age the whole time. I never told anybody my real age because ne never anybody will give me um, the opportunity. You know, obviously when I spoke to the manager. Yeah, but you look like me, you look 18 now, man. <laughs> Thank you. So like, what are you talking you. about? But oh, like, let me tell you. <laughs> let me tell you. Like, like, you, like you got a baby face now. I looked older back then. <laughs> That's let wild. Me tell you. Yeah, I looked older. Um, it was all running around. What are some of the brands like for people? Like, it's okay to name drops of these brands because yeah. Diageo was a player for sure, man. I mean, they still are. Yeah, um, Kettle One was just the new Tito's at the time. It was yeah. up and coming. It was hot. Don Julio was nowhere where it is today. I Don Julio and Bullet. Bullet was not selling. Bullet Bourbon was. I was selling one bottle at a time. Mm -hmm. I helped build it in New York. Um, <clears throat> so a lot of people, but I was literally selling a bottle at a time. But Diageo had um, obviously the Johnny Walker still has Johnny Walker, Tanqueray, Crown Royal, a lot of call brands. Yep. those kind of get you into the get right. You get you the door, door. yeah. Because every bar's got to have those. Yeah. Every restaurant, every seven has to have Johnny Walker Black, you know, you know. Tanqueray. So that got the conversation started. And um, they had a very solid wine portfolio uh, across the board. A lot of, we'll say value brands, but premium brands, uh, accessible brands, um, a lot of by the glass. So it kind of, um, and I sold a lot of wine. I was the top wine sales guy and, you know, um, and Moet Hennessy, I mean, hello, Moet, Vivclico, Dom, Krug, you know, Belvedere, Hennessy, Renard, like some really big, powerful brands. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I've, I've, I was exposed to luxury always, um, selling luxury brands, but also worked with some value stuff. But going back to my, um, my uh, what I was saying, one, I was earning decent living, mm -hmm. but I felt like I didn't keep it because when you work on a W-2 and you work on commission and you earn over a quarter, you know, uh, your, your, you know your taxes are over six digits mm -hmm. a year. And I felt like within three or four years, I'm, you know, paying almost a million dollars in taxes. I'm like, this is, I'm killing myself and mm -hmm. I don't keep anything. And mm -hmm. I lived frugal. I always looked sharp. But I, I lived very frugal. I'm like, this is not, 
um, it, it wasn't working for me. It was like, a, so, um, and then Diageo suddenly, um, there was a word that they were selling their wine business and mm -hmm. they sold their wine business. Mm -hmm. um, around before that, um, I had so many solid relationships that I saw an opportunity of doing direct import of wine. Okay. So I travel all mm -hmm. over the world, a lot of incentives, I go everywhere. I get to stay if I'm going somewhere, I get to stay a little bit Argentina or Chile or whatever, I was traveling with a company. I want every single incentive for 10 years. So I decided to start doing direct import of wine and selling to the people I've known. And I wasn't selling really a case at a time. I was really only selling high volume by the glass um, to about 20 to 25 accounts, a very solid base. But I had to continue performing on my job in case the word ever gets out. They can't fire me because I'm the top guy. Okay, so um, you were you were double dipping, so to speak. Yeah, I was like, double dipping. Yeah, so you had started your own gig. Yeah, so now I had two really solid revenues. Yeah. Um, speaking about taxes and all that, I was like, oh my God, now I, I'm even deeper into the problem that I had. And I saw myself like extremely stressed. Um, riding a motorcycle 12 months a year in Manhattan is... Uh, is, is, well, I was gonna say, man, like I got, I, I got friends who ride bikes. I'm not a guy who rides bikes, and definitely riding around Manhattan, you seem like, um, I wouldn't say, I, you seem like a pretty f determined guy. So I don't even just feel like a determined guy. So like, I, you like, you're zipping around. That's like, that's kind of hardcore to me, man. Um, and yeah, and like I said, year round, like shit. The other day, I was driving, someone was on their motorcycle. Was pouring rain i'm like man there's cats who do that i rode in the snow Are you kidding me <laughs> yeah <laughs> i didn't care i carried cases on the bike on the snow okay you know it's like i did what i had to do yeah and so um going going back to it all you know what hold on this is yeah, actually please. probably a good part take a quick break i'm loving this hope you guys are loving this take a quick break we're gonna be more back with more uh malik i'm ronnie uh so, uh, yeah, I can't wait to hear the rest of these stories. Okay, it's obvious that I love Grenache. But I think by now you guys also know that I just love wine. And that's why on Saturday, November 4th, we are hosting a not just Grenache tasting in association with Grenache Fest. Once again, it'll be held at the Motor Co. in downtown Walla Walla. And tickets are just $35 per person. And we will be featuring wines from some of the top producers in the Walla Walla region. Go to GrenacheFest.com to purchase your tickets today. Okay, we're back. So, yes, yeah, so you are the top salesperson. Got a little direct import thing on the side. But something you said that I think, which I'm loving, is because um, a lot of conversations... <clears throat> And wine, it's about the and wine is romantic. We know it's sexy, right? But like uh, the business, like you've mentioned taxes, so we like like no one comes, comes like it's like yo, dude, I don't, like dude, I'm I'm paying like you said I'm paying like a million dollars taxes in three years, like like that, like so. Your what was your solution to or I, so I just want to know that I heard that and you're probably going to tell so you're doing both, but now you have this additional tax burden sounds like All right so i've 
I've always been a big fan of Napa Valley wines. Okay. You know, wine is my vice, but Napa is the vice. Goes back to voila, the name. Um, but at the time, what really pushed me over the edge was um, I wanted to, I felt like I've done it all in the wine business except make wine. So okay. I've always been like fantasizing about making wine. It's almost like a dream. I visited Napa for the first time in 2009 and dreamt of becoming an Napa Vintner, but at the time I didn't know how it's gonna happen. What really pushed me was <clears throat> Diageo selling their wine business completely. So, and I'm a wine guy, you know, overnight, I was losing almost about 35% of my revenue, um, which actually I never lost. I made it up with champagne and did other things. And But, um, I just felt like I, I I didn't have a purpose doing my job if I was not really selling wine. Mm -hmm. um, so, and you know, there is a joke in the wine business, fastest way to make a million dollars is to start with 10. So um, I decided to, let's lose money. Let's start. Yeah, because you probably had, you know, that, that 100K when you were 20, man, compound interest. <laughs> Oh, there was a lot more than that yeah. in my mid twenties. Oh, I, yeah, and I, as I said, I lived very frugal. Um, I wore very, very sharp, custom tailored suits. I never paid more than five hundred dollars for my suits because I knew the guy and mm -hmm. you know and mm -hmm. traded things. And but you know, I always looked very sharp. Like, but the, I, I was not I was not the type of guy that will spend money in luxury. Um, clothes and things like that it never fulfilled me in a sense so um, the vice idea um, came up one I couldn't name the wine my last name because you know I'm, I'm living a double life to begin with and now I'm gonna have a third thing <laughs> you know it's impossible <laughs> so I sat back in 2013 thinking what is wine to me and I was like well wine is vice and advice and Napa is the vice. So I looked into it. And at the time, wine was still very conservative. The only two brands, I mean, I'm sure there were a few, but the two big ones that were like kind of, you know, breaking the the norm was the prisoner and 19 crimes. And I thought, you know, I maybe I still do, but I thought I was like, who wants to drink wine called the prisoner and 19 crimes? It grew over me over the years. Yeah. But I just thought I was like, who and how? I, I, they do really, really well, but I thought advice was edgy. Advice is not necessarily something bad. It's bad if you do a lot of it, if you overdo it. So it's borderline. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's yeah. And um, you know, um, looked up the vice.com was for sale. I uh, reached out, uh, inquired about it. I think they wanted half a million dollars. Yeah, people people want like stupid amounts. And I have some good domain names, and then people want to offer me like, I'm like, bro, come on, seriously, five hundred dollars? Like, I mean, like, I might need to tell but like, but on the flip side, is people are like, yeah, I want a million dollars for this. Yeah, no, nah, dude. Well, we went from half a million dollars to sixty thousand to five thousand, and I got it for fifteen hundred, and I thought it was the best deal ever. Right, as I'm saying, like, you can, yeah, yeah, negotiate it. Yeah. I think it took like two weeks back and forth, and so I got the domain, and uh, at the time, I knew I wanted to be in Apple, but. Um, you know, we did Chardonnay year one, 2013. Um, the reason why I started with Chardonnay, I had such a solid network of Psalms and wine, wine people 
that to tell them that I'm making wine, I didn't want them to take me as a joke. And I knew that Chardonnay would be the easiest. Easiest by the glass pour. Yeah. So 500 cases. and Carneros? Um, it was actually the, my very first batch was a blend. It was Sonoma, Napa. Okay. 75% Sonoma, mainly Russian River, and then Napa. Um, and they never looked back until uh, batch number 90, 90. We are now at about 130 wines uh, at the Vice, and by the end of this vintage, uh, we'll be at 150, 160 easily, um, if not more. Because uh, these are all... Like single vineyard bottlings and you know, or, so a good question. So I'll um, yeah. So all our wines we make them in batch numbers. Okay, we name them too. Yep. Most of our wines are single vineyard, but the volume doesn't come from them. The most of the volume comes from the house tier. The house tier is just Napa Valley AVA. Yeah. Um, and it's Cabernets that it's the working horse, and then Pinot. Uh, Sauvignon Blanc, and now is orange wine. We have orange wine as well. For a while, it was rosé. At one point, we were doing 3,000 cases of rosé, and I really thought we were going to be a rosé brand back in 2017 or 18. Rosé was popping so much, and I thought that we were going to own rosé, uh, Napa rosé. Then everybody jumped into the wagon, and COVID happened, and rosé was all about socialization, and people don't drink rosé by, by themselves. They really drink it with people, and I feel like Rosie Tell that to the soccer back. moms of New Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had Gregory on, who um, was like another entrepreneur. He worked for Seagram Chateau in the States. He came up with um, bread and butter. He was yeah, cannibal on bread and butter. Them. Yeah, yeah. Them. Um, and I love these conversations about like, like, as much as you guys love wine, like a lot of people sit down, like like you're, you're a numbers guy, like you're looking at this differently, and and that's why I say like um, understanding, and it, it is there's, there's, but you both have a blend of like, yeah, I really love this, but like I want to live a certain my life, certainly have certain goals, and how do I make that happen? You know, whereas you know, there's a lot of cats who just you know get lost and 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 that, um, so. You have to have, right? If you want to be a brand, unless you're ultra premium Napa Valley or, you know, or say you're like my man, Justin down at Paso Robles, Saxon, you put, you know, like you need to have a, you need to have a bread and butter wine that you make, you know, at least 10,000 cases of to support the house. Right. Yep. So yes, you do. But, but here's the thing. Anybody can create a brand. Yeah. You know, anybody, especially the, the, especially the big guys, especially the the very big corporations, they can create a brand all day long. However, what gives a brand substance? Mm. Usually, and and not just my opinion, it's really not about the wine inside the bottle. Although we've been very successful about that with that, and um, I'll tell you all about the accolades and stuff that we continue to have and get. And I'm 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 impressed, honestly. I'm shocked that you know, just looking at our record, but it really comes down to the ability to go sell it. It it just comes down to about hitting the road, pavement, going to sell the wine. And yeah, Andre Max, I don't know if that was a one off. Me, he's like, he's like, you still got to sell the shit. Yeah, you got to go sell your shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah great. <laughs> Free bottle, yeah. wine tastes good, and then what? Yeah. Who's gonna buy it? You got to go sell it. So if you don't have a channel, sales channel, then mm. or sales experience, or um, and it's not easy. That's the tough part. The right easy on. part is making wine. Yeah. Um, 
So, um, yeah, so to get back to it, um, 2014 cab, 2015 field cab, 2016 uh, Rosé, Sauvignon Blanc, Howard Mountain cab, and 2017 really started expanding the portfolio into the sub-regions of Napa. So what we do, just to you know, tell you what the vice is. What does the vice do? Yeah, so the vice... Um, we really break down Napa Valley into the subregions that it has. And not only we break it down, we make as many varietals as possible. You know, we have one, if not the most diverse portfolio of wines from Napa Valley. And not only we do these things, we also aim to make wine accessible. I never get attached to a wine, to a batch of wine. Um, I sold so many batches to the very last bottle and it hurts, but I know that somebody got their hands on that bottle and really enjoyed the wine, so it makes my day. Um, so 130 wines later, here we are. This is batch number 110. Um, you know, current production last year, about 27,000 cases. This year, probably a little bit more, a lot more maybe. Um, we are in the middle of harvest, and it's a late vintage, so I'm still getting phone calls every day from people that have grapes. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm... Um, you know, I mean, yeah, talk about talk about because people don't realize, like, that's not too. Like, people like, 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 there's like, I've had friends that, like, yo, man, listen, um, someone passed on this Pagani Ranch Zen. Do you want, like, people don't realize, like, like, these calls come in, like, and you have, might have like a day to go pick up the, the fruit. Yeah. So, I'm what made me really successful a lot of, of what we do, like 2020 Vintage, for example, which a lot of people. Didn't. passed on um i you know i what we do what i do um i don't know if you got it by now i go against the grain if people are going right i'm gonna go left and i'm gonna take the risk um so in 2020 very dan kennedy you know dan kennedy uh like no. dan kennedy he's a legendary marketer like to this day he uses a fax it makes you know Six, six amount of money, you know, yeah. doing, yeah, but, um, but yeah, he's like, if everybody else is doing that, do this. It's, it's risky. And yeah, it's it is scary. risky. And it's, I'm speaking of which, sorry, since we were talking about different wines and different things, I, I poured myself a little of your, uh, Petite Syrah poured here. Yeah. 2018. Anyway, so go ahead, man. So you're, 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 you're a maverick. So 2020, when people were not picking or panicking, I was picking grapes mm -hmm. for a dime on the dollar. I was mm -hmm. driving around my pickup truck with my checkbook and just like cutting it. Yeah, there's none of our wines had smoke taint. In fact, we got so many high ratings from the 2020 vintage, people panicked and a lot of people, and I don't blame them, if you have insurance and you're gonna go through insurance, fine, but some other people um, you know, didn't know what to do and uh, mm -hmm. We took advantage of that opportunity, and um, we made a lot of great wine in 2020. Yeah, I think you sent some of the wines in 2020. They were great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in addition to breaking Napa Valley down into all its subregions, um, Tori sent me some information about you. We need to we need to find out how you met Tori, how that came. But um, but you also have a a, a, a low to minimal intervention winemaking philosophy. Is that also true? Yes. Yeah. So everything that we do, you know, our winemaking style, really primitive, um, very basic. It, I'm not an analogist and go to school for that. Obviously, you ain't go to school for shit. <laughs> <Is> that, <laughs> 
Not at all. Except, except, except <laughs> knowing how to live a, a purposeful life. I'm a high school I graduate. Know, I, I know. I love, I love it. I know. I love it. That's all I got. <laughs> you know. And, 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 and a, a, a rich dad, poor dad. Look, I'm sure you've expanded your library, but like, I, I hope people walk away from this episode with some good nuggets, man. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So the accessibility is a big part of what we do. Mm-hmm. So for me, the, the, what I saw in my, now it's 20 years in this wine business, Napa just kept, it's the leading wine region in the world. It's the symbol of luxury. It's the apex of the American wine industry. Um, I mean, and it's only going to be better and better. I promise you that. And I'll make sure of that because I am part of this generation (laughs) of Don't don't bet against Napa now that you've heard this episode. No, no, never against it. Bet for it, on it. And um, the um, what I saw, I saw that Napa was inaccessible for a lot of people. When you look at restaurants that buy the glass, at one point, a glass of Napa Cab was 18 bucks, or 16 bucks became 18, then 20, then 24, and it's just, it's just, it was, you know, and it, it opened up doors to other wine regions like Paso and whatnot to really eat Napa's lunch. I wanted to just do the opposite. Like the house cab for me, this is your Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night Napa cab. This is your house cab. We call it the house cab. So you open it, you put the cork back on it. Um, it's going to be great for the, the next, next two, three video. days. Mm-hmm. Um, so when it goes back, to, you asked me about winemaking. Um, to be a varietal in California or Napa Valley, Napa Valley AVA is 85%. To be a varietal, I think California is 75%. I don't like to blend. Everything we do is 100% varietal. Mm. So if you really want to taste what 100% Malbec tastes like, come to the Vice. Uh, Petit Verdot, name a varietal that we make. It's, it's 100%, always 100%. Yeah, 100% varietal. Um, the majority, the overwhelming majority of our Cabernet Sauvignon, 100% varietal. Uh, wines, although um, maybe a, a couple of them, um, the house, you know, there was something just to... Uh, make it uh, you know an accessible blend uh, but it's still Napa Valley still Cabernet we could do a collab MJ's Vice I would love for you to do me a Cheval Blanc uh, Merlot Cab Franc blend out of Napa Valley MJ's right. Vice let's, let's let's make this happen done uh, and of course I'll have, I'll, I'll have to help sell this shit so um, but we can do that yeah you gotta help stomp it yeah, make it yeah I, dude for reals um, so that's interesting because you know i mean that's bold um because if you look i mean going back to where this whole thing started right france right like they blended france that's how they do right like they and we said this and it'll be like good vintage banner so you might cab doesn't get there the Merlot doesn't get there you gotta futz around with it tinker with it um nothing wrong with that um but i don't know if you answer this why do you why the insistence on 100% single varietal to stand out okay you know how many people are doing it and not only that most of our wines are unfiltered unfined I mean, oh yeah you make a point cuz like a lot of shit'll say red wine that red wine that valley red wine yeah. and they won't tell you what's in it not that's that's wrong but now no. but you, you're right i get it you're like you see napa valley red wine or proprietary red wine yeah yeah and I, I appreciate that. It's a style. You're buying a label. You're buying, yeah. you know, like my 
the wine that got me into Napa is Quintessa. I love Quintessa. Shout out to yeah. Rebecca Weinberg. Uh, now I'm gonna... Love Rebecca. Yeah, she's dope. She sent me some wine. Thanks, Rebecca. Yeah. But, you know, it's um, I, there's so much appreciation for that. It's the branding. Yeah. It's what it yeah. is. Yeah. But when you're a new brand and you're trying to establish yourself, find your niche, your You've market. you got to stand out. Yeah. So, yeah. to me, I found it a way to stand out to be 100% varietal wines, predominantly... Um, Keep the wines a little rough, a little bit unfiltered. Don't fine, you know. Mm-hmm. Don't don't try to like uh, sterile filter, which is a really dangerous thing to do. You know, you can do that in a small batch if you're making a couple hundred cases. Once you start to grow, you got to start to clean up your wines, cross flow them, and do certain things because you can't have your wines shipping all over the world, and mm-hmm. you know, don't know what's gonna happen. Uh, so that's uh, the winemaking perspective. Um, minimalist really when it comes and to did you have a consulting winemaker when you first started or did you just a bunch okay yeah um for a while i had a full-time winemaker and um that worked with other people that would take on you know a specific varietal um and then um one of the craziest thing but one of the best thing happened is that he um quit on me in the middle of harvest uh in 2021 and mm. i was like Okay, well, <clears throat> sorry. It's okay. Happens. I was like, well, um, I have to step it up. the The wonderful thing about what we do, um, most of our wines are made at different custom crush facilities. Mm-hmm. Four of them: mm-hmm. uh, two in Napa, one in uh, Sonoma, and one in Contra Costa. And uh, every single facility will have their they have their own staff, and yep. kind of like they have to oversee things anyway. So. Um, it's really more about me needing help to read to read in the numbers and yeah. seeing what is happening. But they obviously want to make good wine. They, um, you know, I'm a client. They want me to succeed as well, so I can continue sure. working with them. So it's been working very well. So speaking of working well, you are one of those people who work with their spouse. Uh, how did you meet Tori? So, it goes back to that restaurant where, um, my last restaurant job, where um, I became the beverage director. Mm-hmm. Um, Tori was going to school at the time uh, uh, to uh, Parsons. School design. School design. Mm-hmm. And she was bartending just to, um, you know, um, I don't think she needed to, but she... Um, wanted to work and have extra money so she can buy designer shoes and bags. <laughs> um, that's my wife. And um, yeah, we met at the restaurant. So um, Yeah, when you work a lot, like you end up dating people you work with sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we, I, I thought she didn't like me for a long time. And, it, you know, I liked her, but I wasn't really hitting on her or anything. Mm-hmm. She thought I was, but I was just really nice to her. <laughs> And then, uh, you know, one day magic happened, and here we are, 16, almost 17 years later in January. Wow. So it's been a while for y'all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's been, um, it's one of the reasons why the vice, I mean, not one of the reasons, the main. So people look at the vice and they associate the vice to me. It's really an equal partnership. Mm-hmm. Um 
I still try to push her every single day to take to be more uh, brand facing and be more the you know mm-hmm. like take some uh, equity public equity on the brand public equity and, yeah 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 but um, she's really behind the scene but um, I drew this day one mm-hmm. and if you see the label and you'll come to Napa I'll show it to you I'll send you a picture of the first label I drew it had nothing to do with our original label that we had. Um, the only thing she kept was the logo, which is the vine. Okay. Um, I can't draw for shit, man. Let me tell you. <laughs> um, this is the only thing I drew, and everyone is like, is it a palm tree? If poppy flower? I know. It does kind of like a palm tree. Okay. So, Great. Right. It's whatever you want it to be. Yeah. That's our logo. So we trademarked <laughs> it, too. Trademarked the logo for that. But It's a Rorsch test of a white label. <laughs> and, um, but um, she's... Um, the vice wouldn't be it wouldn't exist yeah. without her yeah. um so for she was in fashion for, okay i was gonna say for well so yeah. while you're killing it she's off in the fashion world doing her thing exactly a year ago she retired from fashion so now we're she's full-time with the vice and you guys um we're living in L.A. for a while, right? Because I, I have some social media. But yeah. Like, so you were down in L.A. Yeah. And you were going up, checking and stuff. So yeah. you guys in L.A., was that because she was in fashion or just L.A. is just big market for you? And just what was. Yeah. So I quit. Um, I I made the jump um, in 2018. Okay. It was really hard. I was thinking about it for two years. Mm-hmm. And I was like, how do you leave all this revenue? And how, you know, <laughs> yeah. but it, it's really two years of daily doubt and questioning. And then finally, May 2018, I let everything go. So I'm only focused on the vice, I'm all in. Um, at the time, Tori was, we were here. Tori was, um, um, was in fashion here and um, she worked here, here too. And, um, um, she got a gig in LA, a really okay. nice gig in LA. So I was like, great, this is closer to Napa, mm-hmm. less flight time. Mm-hmm. That same time I was flying back and forth, I started driving it six hours back and forth between LA and, and Napa. Um, Napa. But I, I, I kind of liked it because it was last year I did 33 round trips between. Um, up to five? Up to five, baby. Shit. Oh, Through baby. Neiman Ranch. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you all about yeah, it. No, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, but yeah, like we're this year, full time, we moved to uh, Napa this March. Uh, we sold our house in LA. And um, as I said, she was uh, done with fashion last September. Mm-hmm. Uh, took us six months to really make the full move, and um, it was a goal for us since 2009. And um, you know, I've been saying it for years. It sounds crazy, but I felt like my calling, the place where I want to spend the rest of my life, is Napa. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't see myself living anywhere else mm. again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like like primary residence. Yeah, so. I understand. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, we're loving it, man. We're in Saint Helena. It's um, you know, it's a small town, middle of the Napa Valley, five thousand people or so. Almost everybody knows everybody, mm-hmm. and it's a different vibe. And you know, it's. I, I said this yesterday. Somebody got mad at me, but I'm gonna say it again. Um, the bigger the the town or the city, the smaller your community. It's That's true. my opinion. No, it's facts because. It's 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 true, and the smaller the 
the town, the bigger the, bigger the community. Yeah. We have so many friends now. Yeah. We're like, you know, I mean, when I we lived here in Manhattan, people on my floor didn't know their names. He's, that's what I'm saying. I mean, that's a freaking Seinfeld episode, right? Like, where he's like, oh, we already named that. Like, no one knows. You just say hi, whatever. Let's do Not even. My neighbors would live on the same floor. They walk right past yeah, you. Yeah, it's like headphones. Don't talk to yeah. me. It's like, <laughs> you know. Oh, that's great. So, this is a great question for you. How do you balance? Because the vice, it's it's red wine. You love wine. You love um, you love wine. Um, you love living the good life. But you're a triathlete, right? Like you're still very fit. Like. Like, you know, it, it's very easy in this business, you know, to go overboard and eat too much foie gras and sauternes and wake up one day and you're 40 pounds heavier. You, I think you're still, you compete in triathlon and stuff like that. So yeah. being in Napa Valley, being a mountain, that must be great for you to just go out and ride your bike. What, how do you balance that? What's that like for so, you? So, you know, that it's very corny, but um, work hard, play hard. Um, and especially with the wine. <clears throat> It is such a vice, and I really don't like to drink at night. I actually don't really like to drink as much. I love the taste of wine. Right. I taste so much wine. I spit so much wine. Uh, but um, I love day drinking. Let me tell you, I, I, I start early by 5 p.m. I, lo- I don't want to drink anymore. You know, it's, I'm done. It's like I've enjoyed my day drinking. I'd love to just you know, chill for the rest of the night, which is the opposite of most people. Well, do. when I lived in California, it was, that was people would go out to lunch. They'd go, when I was in Santa Barbara, you go to the bistro, you start drinking around 12, you're done drinking by like six. That's it. Right. And I remember, I remember this years ago, man, I worked for Reebok and we had this consultant from California and he was, and it's just what you said. Like he was a California dude. And I remember he, we were at dinner or lunch and he goes he's like people looking I'm in first class drinking my shit he's like fuck you dude I got up at 4.30 and I was riding my bike but like but like get up he work, work uh, exercise do his work start drinking early in bed at 9 so he can be up at 4 so that's exactly me I'm actually I've been waking up at 4 for many years mm-hmm. this year specifically this year I started to wake up at 3 to 3.30 no alarm the, most of um, the days I wake up with no alarm mm. the reason why I'm up early well east coast west coast the time change uh, by the time it's 9am here it's 6am there yeah. I want to make sure um, I've already accomplished a lot uh, paperwork or worked out so going back about the balance Listen, I I drink no in the French paradox. I made a wine called the American paradox because mm. I drink no less than a bottle a day mm-hmm. on average. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I try to cut back, but if I really want to be honest about it, and especially when I work market or I'm in Napa tasting wine out of the barrels or meeting people, I'm drinking a bottle a day. Mm-hmm. Um, so Spurrier said that. I mean, he lived a long time. He's like, I I easily drink a bottle of wine a day. Yeah, because it's, it's part of my life. I'm in the business. Right, like cannot to right, and um, I wish I didn't have to, but sometimes you have to. Yeah. But I like to, I have to balance it because um, it's for me working out. It's honestly not about the looks; it's a side effect that comes with you know. Yeah. Um, it's really about the mental part of it. It's my meditation. It's like my me time, me, myself, and I, especially nowadays with social media and everything else. Yeah. You can easily spend an hour on the phone. It's like it happened to me this morning. Mm-hmm. And um, I wish I was working out this morning. But um, 
um, you know, the, like an example, the next, when I go back tonight, um, we, I thought we were going to be harvesting Pinot tonight, but I don't think we will hopefully Monday, um, Sunday night or Monday, but, um, it's going to be a really busy month. One of the busiest months of my life, mm -hmm. but because I knew it's going to be a busy month, guess what I did? I'm going to dial everything up too. Mm -hmm. I never done an Ironman. I signed up for Ironman Arizona in the desert. So I'm going to do Ironman 70.3, October 22nd. I'm really a um, short distance guy and um, I've been very competitive for years. I've been in Team USA since 2018 for age groupers. So my age group now is 35 Damn. to 39. Um, think of it like semi-professional. It's mm -hmm. amateur, but it's still very competitive because you compete, you go to nationals, you compete with the best of the best in the country, and then you go to the world championship. Um, so I've made Team USA in multiple disciplines of, or variation of triathlon. So there's triathlon, there's sprints, there mm -hmm. is duathlon, which is run by Kron, there's a bunch of aquathlon, there's mm -hmm. aquabike, there's all that kind of variation of it. Um, but I honestly do it one, it makes me happy. Um, it gives me, um, I can justify drinking a bottle of right, day. Right, right, And it keeps me away from um, other vices. Yeah. This vice can feed other vices too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Trust. Um, I worked. <laughs> Especially in New York City. Well, any city, man. Like, like yeah. hospitality is, is a minefield that you have to navigate. Let's put it that way. You know, I'll tell you, you didn't ask me, but I'll tell you, uh, one of my vices for many years, since I was a child, um, I'm not proud to say, but it's been cannabis. And, um, you know, this year is the first year that I'm not really taking on as much. And... Ah, I mean, it's cannabis, cannabis. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but no, I, I, I feel you. That's cool, man. I mean, I, 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 so that's great. I mean, I just, I will, I, you brought up, I know I've noticed that in the past few months, I'm like, if I don't smoke, I feel better in the morning. It takes me in a different direction. And I'm older than you, and I'm like, and like just, <clears throat> I think I started smoking more during the pandemic. <laughs> but now I was like, I'm like, I'm like, oh, you know what? Oh, I'm fresh this morning. Even though I drank, I'm like, oh. That's the only difference. And also I... I applaud what you do because I work out for the same reason. My mental health, I had gotten off my uh, routine for a minute and just got back into, I'm a kettlebell guy. I also martial artist like oh, you are. Nice. Um, and just the past couple of weeks, I started doing the kettlebells again. And like immediately my body, like I just feel ready to take on the day. Right. And if you're and same thing, I've competed in, in sports, high school and college. I'm a competitive dude. And I do need to feed that physical part of me to feed, you know, my, com you know, being competitive in this field of podcasting and media and things I want to do. Like I'm better when I'm, when I work out, you know, I, that's me. A hundred percent. Yes. You know, it, it's, I mean, we, we don't have to dive into it, but you know, um, physically it just changes you it just yeah. puts you you know chemically inside hormonally it right. just makes you a uh, you know it spurs you to um, succeed at your day when you start especially in the morning with physical activity absolutely absolutely man oh so man 
this is I'm, I'm having a lot of fun <clears throat> but you're actually in town this will this will air probably like three weeks but you're in town for a men's health event i think it's perfect that like you coming I'm, man, I'm gonna go home, man. It's oh. raining. Subways are all fucked up. <laughs> you don't want to see Jim Jones and C.J. Wallace, Biggie's son. Oh, man, no. You know what? I want to go home, and one of my vices is burgers, and have a burger night with my wife. And then we're coming back in the city to see Tony, Tony, Tone on every reunion tomorrow. So I'm coming back in the city tomorrow. So I was gonna go down with you, but I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm gonna go home. Um, that event looks dope as hell, though, man. But. uh like so yeah so you're actually providing the wine for this men's health event because but but let's back so as we talk about being in the industry pitfalls working out um there's always this back and forth it's like like you mentioned french paradox but now it's like now the world health is like there's no amount of alcohol that's good for you and it's it's an it's 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 annoying to get people like i'm gonna share my feeling too much of anything is bad for you <laughs> Absolutely, and and find your balance, and find what works for you. What do you think about that? Because literally, I was reading the other day. It was like I get the biz, uh, wine biz daily, and it's like, yep. World Health Organization about to say you can't have any alcohol. Yeah, they can say whatever they want to say. Yeah. You know, it, it it's it's really silly because the, the, everything changes every single month. Exactly. Next month's gonna say, oh, this is better for you. This is not good for you. Um, I'm with you. Balance is, and and every person is different. Everybody's different. You gotta, yeah. You gotta find your own balance, and you know, with no prejudice. Like, I'm not gonna judge if you drink a bottle a day. Works for you. Drink a glass a day. Works for you. Don't drink at all. Good for you. Yeah. You know, you you drink two bottles a day, and you're able to perform and do certain things. Great Damn, I'm, I envy you. you know? But but yeah, like but it's right. We're all individuals. We all have to find our balance. One size fits all. That's what they're trying to apply to yeah. the populace. And it's, it's you know, I, I was honestly thinking about it earlier because I'm like, there's so many challenges that the wine industry is ongoing right now. Um, yeah. And one of them is, you know, there's so many all hidden and all at once. But that I'm, I literally was thinking about that World Health Organization thing. And I'm like, I'm going to trust you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's just a whole, God, man, goes back to something we touched on earlier. I mean, it's, we could just, yeah. let's come visit you in Napa and we'll have to do two bottles and then we'll just have to work out twice as hard the next day. <laughs> I'm in. Um, so, uh, before I let you go, like Frankie, Beverly and Mays, um, I play a game. I changed the game because someone bit my shit a couple weeks ago. So, but it still will have the same effect. I'm going to give you three varietals and mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and we, the game we're going to play is slap lick and fondle. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So one wine, one variety you slap, the other one you lick, the other one you fondle. Okay. All right. So what's fondle? Let me just. I, I, I said fondle, not group. So fondle. Okay. All right. <laughs> just make... Yeah, not group. Okay. All right. <laughs> it, the F used to be for something else. So, you know. Okay. Um, um, I'm trying to. Uh, I'm not really trying to be user friendly because it's still. It, these are still graphic, which I love. All right. Um, so Cabernet Sauvignon, Pinot Noir, and Sauvignon Blanc. These are your big three. There you go. These are your big three. Oh, that's. That's... Which one you slapping? Which one you licking? Which one you fondling? Well, I'll slap Pino. Oh, really? Yeah, the diva of all the grapes. I love such a love 
think with Pinot, but it's um, it's finicky. It's hard. It's so funny. This you're the second person I did this with because I just like, made a change and say and dude, same thing. Slap Pinot. <laughs> it's and it's hard to make. I yeah, mean, it's, yeah. It's it's not. An you're easy. like ah, I just can't take you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's it. Um, lake. I lick Sauvignon Blanc. Okay. Yeah. It's it's a good one to lick. Yeah. You know, it's uh it could it could be it could be lean and racy yeah. and it can you can get in you can get it could be kinda so rad. Aromatic. You put in some bad you put some some oak on it, a little a little round, a little mm. Yeah. Yeah. And cab, I mean yeah. it's got yeah. it's got some Yeah. Some <laughs> a little something something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So one more question for you. Um done a lot you're clearly a goal-oriented person what are you most excited about in the future in terms of wine napa valley your life man it could be mine uh, could be napa valley or it could be like it could be yeah whatever what are you excited about for the future well at the moment um it, it really goes back maybe this sums up it goes back we'll go back full circle how it all started i never would have had the opportunity that I've had today that I have today that I've had so far if I would have went to France. Wow. I can't think ever of an immigrant or a person of color or whatever you want to put it, however you want to put it, that in France it went to Champagne, Fran uh, Burgundy or Bordeaux, one of their best regions, and is doing what I'm doing. It's like, mm. you know, lifting up that region and you know, making it accessible or doing something. It's just like, they won't have an opportunity. In fact, if you're from Bordeaux, go to Burgundy, you're probably not going to, you know, it's going to be hard for you. But the United States gave me so much. It's not a perfect place, but it gave me so much opportunity. And um, I can't believe I still, I, every I pinch myself sometimes. I'm like, that Napa Valley, the best of the best in the United States, welcomed me with such open arms, gave me the opportunity. And... Here I am in Nath Valley, Vietnam. We're 553, I don't know, 560 of us, maybe a little bit more, a little bit less. And um, here I am in probably in the top, definitely 20% of producers by volume, about 80% of Nath Valley. That's that's facts. People don't realize that most of the people are producing small stuff. That's yeah. amazing. 80% of yeah. Nath Valley wineries make less than 5,000 yeah. cases. Um, but what I'm really excited about right now, I'm actually running for the Nath Valley, Vietnam's board. So um, there are 11 seats on the board, and um, I'm running, and um, you know I'm hoping to uh, be on the board starting January 1st. So I'm super excited about that, and um, my um, hope is to help not just Napa Valley or California or really the American wine industry overall. Um, it's not about changing things. Things have been working. Things are great. They've been working for a reason. Napa is Napa because there are a lot of things. There's a lot of um, foundation has been set. It's about uh, the continuation. It's about progress. And it's about um, this is working. Well, let's try this also. Let's add to it. It's about evolving. Evolving. <clears throat> and um, mm, yeah, I'm so excited, to be honest with you, to be part of the current generation and Vintners and maybe future generation of vintners that will propel other vintners to come join this industry. Um, people to also believe in themselves, they can do it. That were not born in the business, that are not fourth, fifth generation, that um, can, you know, maybe 
this today will um, inspire somebody that is from United States or from somewhere in the world that mm -hmm. is passionate about wine and they can believe in themselves that they can reach also their own goals and um, be part of this business. That's what I'm really excited about. Every single day, I feel like I'm so blessed that I'm able to do this. Um, and um, um, I'm so looking forward to the future uh, when it comes to that. That's awesome. Malik, thank you so much, man. Thank you, MJ. Tell people where they can find you, how they can be a part of what you're doing. Thevice.com. Uh, Which he paid at, for, five fifteen dollars <laughs> <laughs> At thevicewine, at uh, M-A-L-E-K-A-M-R-A-N-I. Um, that's for my personal. I'm not really big on social. I'm trying. Every year I say, my goal is to do more. But <laughs> that's the New Year resolution I never do. <laughs> um, busy doing other things. But I uh, really appreciate you, MJ, for the opportunity to be here today. Love your content. Um, and um, it's, 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 um, it's really, um, I can't put it in words. You know, you, you didn't ask for anything. You didn't ask for, like, this. I want people to know, too. I don't know if you can chop this out. But uh, you're so humble and just accepting me to be here today. It's such, um, you know, I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I really uh, appreciate that. It was heartfelt. He's got me all misty-eyed over here but for all the listeners out there don't forget to check out the show notes for each episode you'll find info on the wine we drank uh links to the cool thing we discussed i'll put the links to his social links to their website i'll put links to you know the vice and his personal instagram so we'll blow that up so we'll have to get on there and until the next time cheers to the mavericks he checks that off philosopher he checks it off deep thinker he checks it off also the economist i need to add that he checks that one off and all you wine drinkers your boy mj saying peace Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list. <laughs>